in heaven. Lord, what incredible hope we have because, uh, because of the resurrection. Because we know that you are indeed uh, reigning on high. And uh, your power extends through all the world and all the universe. Uh, it extends into our life. And it transforms us and makes us your children, children of light. And Lord, we just acknowledge you, we praise you, we lift up the name of Jesus and thank you so much that not only did you die for us, but you conquered sin and death through the grave and the empty tomb. And we just celebrate that this morning and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This morning we are celebrating uh, risen Savior. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 18, so let me read that as we begin. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, They have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw, and he believed. For until then they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head, and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angel asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. Um, it is amazing to celebrate the resurrection. And uh, it, is, it is incredible that each of us get to proclaim a risen Jesus. It is what separates Christianity from all other religions. Only Christianity worships a living Savior. Uh, it's through the cross, and in many ways the cross is in some ways more important to us personally because it's through the cross that we have been guaranteed forgiveness of sins. 
And so part of the Easter story really is the cross. And thankfully, through the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, and we have forgiveness. Hallelujah for that. But the empty tomb, the resurrection, is what guarantees the cross. Okay? In other words, the only way we know that the cross worked is if Jesus rose again. Right? Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so if, if Jesus had any effect on the cross, if his life and his blood had any effect on the cross, then the natural result should be him coming back to life. And in turn, that's the hope for us, that we too will have eternal life in him. It's kind of like flying. Uh, think about this. You get in an airplane. We do this all the time. You get in this big, huge jet with these massive engines that have hundreds of thousands of pounds of thrust that hurled you towards your certain doom, right? Down this little road about a mile long, and at the end of that road is death, right? And you hurl yourself at several hundred miles an hour at this brick wall or forest. And, uh, but the pilot assures us and everybody assures us that this is normal and that you're supposed to do that and that if everything that they think works, works, when you get to the end of that strip, instead of going forward, you'll go up. And praise God, you're all here as living witnesses of that, right? Most of you have, have experimented and tried that out. If it works, you go up, right? Well, that's kind of the way the cross was. If it really worked, Jesus had to rise. And so for us, the, the uh, resurrection is extremely important because it validates and proves the effectiveness of the cross. Otherwise, Jesus was really no different than anyone else. What he taught was no better than what anyone else taught. And we might as well be any other number of religions. It would be all the same. But the cross, uh, the empty tomb, proves that it was true and effective and real. And it is our hope. It is the reason that we can face death, difficulty, struggle, knowing that you know life is, is hurtling us down that runway. When we get to the end, we don't crash into the wall. We go up. Praise God. Amen. Amen. So when you look through the gospel accounts and all, and all the gospels, uh, there's not a lot of effort to prove the cross. I mean, nobody questions the cross. Nobody doubts that Jesus died on the cross. Even the, the most skeptical people, if they in any way accept Jesus was a true historical figure, they all agree that he did die on the cross. Uh, the gospel writers make no effort to prove that or to to give any evidence for his death on the cross. It was widely accepted. The Jews accepted it. Even his enemies uh, who killed him later in history affirmed his death. But when it comes to the resurrection, it's totally different. Uh, And there's some good reasons for that. Uh, We understand dying, right? We've all experienced, well, not personally experienced it, personally, but we've all had close encounters. We've all known people who have died. We've gone through the grieving process of losing people. We believe in death. Most of us, probably the majority of us, have never actually seen somebody rise again, right? It's a little harder to believe that one. And consequently, uh, the gospel writers all feel more weight to give evidence or proof to prove the resurrection. Now, the reality is we can't prove the resurrection. It is ultimately a matter of faith. You either believe it because you accept it as truth and faith, or you don't. But there is reasonable evidence to show that it is true. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on that this morning. But as you look through the accounts, and the same is true in the Gospel of John, 
Uh, the gospel writers give a lot more evidence that this is all real. And as you look through the end of chapter 19, uh, John lays out some very clear facts to demonstrate that Jesus' death was complete. He didn't just mostly die, like from the movies. He, all, he completely died. He was fully dead. Uh, he describes his horrible beating. Uh, and and you know, a lot of research has supported that the beatings themselves oftentimes killed people. He was nailed, not just tied, but nailed to this cross. Uh, an effective, cruel way of dying. Uh, he did not make it to the end. And uh, when they were going to go break the, the victim's legs, they discovered that Jesus was already, dra- already dead. Trained soldiers perceived that he was dead. But that wasn't enough. They took the spear, the sword, and they, they pierced his side, way up into his lung cavity, up into his heart. Okay, people don't generally survive those kinds of things, especially after beatings, after being nailed to a cross, uh, being dehydrated. They took him down from the cross. Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, and also Nicodemus from John chapter 3, took it. It says they prepared Jesus' body for burial. It says specifically in John 19 that Nicodemus bought 75 pounds of spices. Okay, what they would do is they would take strips of linen, toilet paper basically, and uh, they would wrap them around the body and then lay a, a, a layer of these spices, another layer of wrappings, more spices, more like that, till you get this in, encased person in these strips of cloth and 75 pounds of spices. Okay? The smell alone would kill you. All right? Just think about that. Um, or at least would revive you. And these guys spent probably an hour or two doing this, handling his body, rolling him over, flipping him. If he was alive, they would have noticed. You know, breathing happens. You know, they would have seen it. These guys handled his body a lot. Was he dead? Yes, he was thoroughly dead. Okay, if that wasn't enough, okay, you put him in the tomb for a couple days, wrapped up, no light, no air, uh, severely wounded, no water, no anything. Who survives that? Nobody. And John paints this picture that Jesus was fully dead. Okay? He didn't just pass out on the cross and wake up in the tomb and unbind himself from 75 pounds of, of ointment and yards and yards of, of wrappings, pick up a several hundred pound stone from the inside, set it aside and walk out. Okay? It's impossible. Jesus died. He fully died. Uh, likewise, he rose. Uh, you know, there's a lot of theories about the resurrection. Um, some claim, well, you know, he did die. They did bury him. But when the, they went to the tomb, they went to the wrong tomb. Okay, I love this theory. Okay, they went to the wrong tomb. Okay, so that means Mary, all the other ladies, the disciples who had all seen him placed in the tomb, they all made the same exact mistake. They went to a tomb that just happened to have the stone rolled away or removed. Just happened to have two Roman soldiers passed out in front, lying on the ground trembling. Went in, just happened to have on the burial bench uh, this very neatly arranged cloth wrappings and spices in the shape of a body. Just happened to be there, but the body had been vacated. Just happened to be two angels standing in there saying, oh, hey, oh, you're looking for the Jesus resurrection? That's two tombs down. This is the wrong tomb, different resurrection. Okay? Just happened to be these angels standing there, right? Well, it's ridiculous. Okay, and they kept going back to the same tomb. Uh, you know, the gospel writers are, are building this case that they went to the right tomb. Too many things were in place. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. It wasn't a mistaken tomb. 
Uh, a lot of the effort that John uh, deals with is this idea of Jesus being stolen. Who would steal Jesus' body? Well, two groups. First would be the Jews. The Jewish leaders who killed them could potentially have stolen his body uh, to spite the followers of Jesus so that his tomb wouldn't become a place of further worship and a further place of rallying. Perhaps they feared that um, even in death his body may possess powers and the people would still be influenced by him. So it's conceivable that they would have at least tossed around the idea. The other group that could have done it would have been the disciples themselves. Uh, We know the Jews didn't do it because later when they claimed that Jesus rose again, they would have given anything to produce his body. If they had stole him, they could easily have said, oh, guess what, we found him. You know, he was under the rug, he didn't look. You know, they could have proven his resurrection was false. They didn't do that. In fact, they paid great money to cover up that his body was missing. So that leaves the group of disciples. Uh, Many critics and skeptics have said, well, the disciples did it to unfold this great scam, this great lie on humanity. Well, let's look through John chapter 20. And in in this, um, I think John really demonstrates that one of the greatest proofs that the resurrection was true was how ill-prepared the disciples were for it occurring. Okay? The disciples, as we look through this story, all of them took serious convincing to show that it was true. Because this was such an absurd, ridiculous idea that even the reality of it, they weren't prepared for. Much less did they come up with this crazy notion on their own. In other words, you know, if Peter, James, and John all were sitting around one night uh, after his death, maybe had too much to drink, and said, hey, I've got an idea. Let's steal his body and tell everybody it was a resurrection. If the thought came up, which I'm sure it didn't, but if it did, they would have said, yeah, who would believe that? That's ridiculous. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. Because that's how they received Jesus' death. As completely absurd and off the charts. So unbelievable was it. Uh, In chapter 20, we're only going to look at the first two incidents, but there's four accounts of how people came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus' followers. Each instance it becomes increasingly difficult to convince them until we get to Thomas at the end who's going, i got to have it all laid out. i got to see Jesus. i got to see the wounds. I want to see everything. I want hardcore evidence and proof. Uh, we're going to back the story up, rewind a bit to Peter and John and, and Mary and see how they came to believe in the resurrection. Uh, so how were they convinced? How did they come to believe? It says that Mary was the first of the tomb. The other gospel accounts tell us it was Mary and some other women. Uh, Later, Mary says that we uh, could not find his body. It's it's certain that um, there were others that went with Mary. But John focuses in on Mary for a good reason. And later in the story, he, he highlights her encounter with Jesus. And so in this story, the focus, the attention is, is, is clearly on Mary. She goes, it says, very early in the morning to the tomb while it was still dark. Throughout the Gospel of John, he's used darkness and light not only to describe the time of day, but to really describe the, the place of people's hearts. It's a way of symbolizing if people were walking in the light of truth or were still blinded and in the dark. And so this picture of Mary going to the dark 
means only she'd go very early in the morning, which it certainly was, well before daylight had dawned, but also before the truth had dawned in, their, in her heart. She goes to the tomb uh, with these ladies. Why, why did they go? Well, we all know from the other gospel accounts that these women wanted to further prepare Jesus' body for burial. They wanted to be with Jesus, his body, one last time. And this seems to be especially true for Mary. It seems that Mary, of all these ladies, of all these people, was having an especially difficult time with this whole deal. And as you can imagine being in their shoes, what this must have been like. Horrible. Uh, To be so in love with Jesus, to be so committed to everything that he taught, to have given your heart fully and completely to his idea of kingdom and truth and life, and to believe wholeheartedly in him, to follow him, to give up everything and follow him, and then to have him die. What disappointment, what grief, what heartache uh, this brought to the disciples, but especially Mary. And we all know that the grieving process is the process of letting go. But it's not easy to let go of those who you lose in death. And Mary was not at that place yet. And for her, the way, a way of not letting go was to be close to the body of Jesus. It was to hold on to his body. Now, we, we, we know that that's kind of a pointless and hopeless exercise, that the person's no longer there. That didn't matter to Mary. For her, it was all that was left. And deep in her heart and soul, she wanted to be with the body of Jesus. It was important to her. She wanted to touch it. She wanted to see it. She wanted to be close to it. To somehow stay connected with Jesus. And so she goes early, maybe four or five in the morning. This time of year, it would have been exact this time of year. The sun here comes up fairly early. I don't know what time, but it was early. Maybe she couldn't sleep. She goes to the tomb, longing just to have one more touch with Jesus. And she goes to the tomb, and the, in the early morning darkness, all she can see is the, is the tomb, and the stone's been removed. Uh, she, it doesn't say that she looks in. If she did, it would have been too dark to see anything. But she starts piecing things together in her mind. and her, In her mind, there's only one logical explanation for the stone being rolled away. And that's that somebody has taken Jesus' body and moved it, stolen it, whatever. Uh, in that period, there was a problem with grave robbing. In fact, in 40, about 45 A.D., uh, they actually, the Romans actually had to pass a law making tomb robbing punishable by death. So it was something that happened often. And that was her first thought. Somebody has taken Jesus' body. She runs back. She wakes up or uh, alerts Peter and John the disciple Jesus loved, Jesus' body is missing. Um, in, the, in the darkness, Peter and John run back to the, the open tomb um, looking for answers, uh, thinking in their minds somebody has stolen Jesus' body. Well, Peter and, and, and John race back, and they are confronted with some very clear evidence uh, at this point, the sun is starting to come up, the, the light shining into the tomb, just like my fun picture there, you can't see very well. But um, John arrives at the tomb first. It's interesting, it says that they race to the tomb. Uh, and it makes it a clear point that John got there first. Um, 
Now, there's several possibilities for why John included this. Maybe he wanted everybody to know that he was faster than Peter. I don't know. Maybe he wanted people to know that, you know, Peter ate too much and, you know, was, I don't know. Or it, it probably is more likely a picture that John came to the tomb first because there are several things throughout the Gospel of John that John came to first. Not only did he come physically to the tomb first, but as we'll see in a moment, he came to the truth first. Uh, I don't think John is bragging or proud. He's just bearing witness to his own personal experience with Christ. It clicked with him before it did with Peter. Uh, John comes, gets there first. He peers into the tomb, and and what does he see? Well, the tomb is probably much like it's pictured there, just an empty room, stone chamber with a bench, maybe a couple of benches where they would have laid this body that had been prepared. As Peter, as John looks in, he sees the bench and he sees the burial clothes laid out in the shape of a body, uh, laying there, uh, perhaps the spices still making somewhat of a form, but clearly the body is gone. He sees that. About the same time, Peter dashes up. Peter does not stop. Peter, you know, is a full bore kind of guy, charges into the tomb. I don't know, maybe John waited outside because he thought the burglars could still be in there. Maybe he was afraid of ghosts. I don't know. Peter blazes in. Sees the same thing. Sees the bench, sees the, the clothes laying there. And he adds the extra note that the head cloth had been neatly folded or rolled up and was laying at the side. Now, these guys are standing here. What should they have been thinking? Well, we all know, because we, we know the end of the story, we know they should have been thinking, I get it. The whole thing Jesus said, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried for three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday, and I'm going to rise again. Of course, right? Jesus had only said this how many times over and over again? That's what they should have been thinking. Or they should have known their Old Testament well enough to know this is what the Old Testament described of the suffering servant, the Messiah. Instead, they're standing there scratching their heads going, hmm, this is odd. What is this? What are we seeing here? Well, if, if somebody stole Jesus' body, would they do this? You know, can you picture somebody coming out, okay, we're going to steal Jesus' body, but let's leave the grave clothes behind. Let's unwrap it all and then neatly rearrange it back in place. Let's take the head cloth off and fold it up neatly and take the body away. That'll throw them off. Well, you know, they're thinking, no, nobody would do that. Who would do that? If the Jews wanted his body, if somebody moved it, they wouldn't do that. So they're looking at this evidence. They are confronted with the, the first really evidence of the resurrection. The empty tomb, the empty grave clothes, uh, this, this scene. And they're trying to make sense of it. The other Gospels say that Peter goes away perplexed. He's trying to figure this out. What could explain this? But here in John, it says very quietly and almost secretly, we don't know that John even said anything, but it says that deep in his heart, John believed. John looked at it and he starts piecing things together. He's going, there's only one thing that would explain what happened here. Jesus rose out of his clothes. He didn't need him anymore. He rose right through him and he vacated those grave clothes. And he took the face covering off and he rolled it up and he set it on the side and he walked out of the tomb. 
the light dawns on John, and he believes. And it makes it a point to say, sadly, Scripture had not impressed that on him yet. He didn't believe because he came to terms with all that the Old Testament had prophesied. He believed simply because he was confronted with this basic evidence. And this is significant because in, in all the accounts of those who come to know and believe in the resurrection immediately following until Jesus' ascension, John is the only one who believes without actually seeing Jesus. Okay, it's significant. Now, why is that significant? In fact, a bigger question really is, why isn't Jesus just standing at the door of the tomb? Why does he make, why does Jesus, here's the question for you and I, why does God always make it so difficult, right? Why couldn't have Jesus been standing at the tomb holding the rock, you know, going, hey guys, welcome to the tomb. Come here, look at it, check it out, you know. Why does he make it so hard, right? Why, where is Jesus, right? Why is he not there? Why is it important that John comes to faith with only that evidence? Well, we'll get the answer to that a little later in the story, so I'm not going to tell you yet. You probably already know, so it's all right. But if you don't, I'll keep you in suspense. Um, so that's the scene of the crime. And John believes as he enters the tomb on, on the basis and weight of just the evidence, not even, not even Scripture, just the evidence of what he sees. So they exit the scene, they exit the stage. Um, most likely Mary was not there at the same time that Peter and John were. Uh, they go back. Uh, Peter still puzzling. Peter still not understanding. John, a growing sense of conviction about what has happened. Mary returns, and she is just absolutely torn apart with grief. Uh, you know, if we have any sense of empathy or compassion, to look at this poor lady really would break our heart. Not only is she grief-stricken that Jesus has been taken from her forever, but now the one thing that she wants to hold on to, the one thing that would connect her and give her some sense of comfort, would be to touch Jesus' body one last time, to see him one last time. And she just wants that. And now even that apparently has been robbed, taken away from her. Somebody has even stolen that one simple, tiny bit of comfort from her. And so she stands there at the entrance of the tomb just crying. The Greek word that's used there is not just crying, weeping, sobbing. It is wailing. It's the same word used at the, the grievers at Lazarus' funeral who were wailing out loud. So you can just picture this woman just wailing, crying, grief-stricken, torn apart really at the end of her world. There is in her no comfort, no hope, nothing. And she is just grieving, overcome by grief. And she peers into the tomb, maybe hoping that it's all a mistake and in the darkness, you know, Jesus was hidden back in some corner. She peers in trying to see if he's there, see what's there. And it says that she encounters... Uh, these two angels. Uh, one clothed in white at the head, one at the foot of this bench, sitting there with these grave clothes, still witnessing Jesus' resurrection. She's not seeing it. And not only that, she really doesn't see the angels, okay? Uh, 
don't know about you, but if I saw two guys sitting in a tomb robed in white, shining, anywhere close to being angelic, it kind of freaked me out, okay? She is so overwhelmed with grief. It doesn't matter. Okay? It just gives you an idea of the sense of hurt and pain this lady is going through. Angels don't phase her. They say, woman, why are you crying? That could be taken one of two ways. It could be, lady, you look very upset. What is the cause of all your sorrow? It could also be taken, lady, why are you crying at a time like this? Why are you crying now in the, in the empty tomb of Jesus? They bear witness. So, as I said, each story, the amount of witness and testimony goes up a notch. Okay? She's confronted with the witness of the empty grave clothes, but now it's added the witness of angels. But it doesn't really sink in for her. Uh, it doesn't connect with her. In fact, it says that she turns around. Literally, it says, uh, a literal translation that she turns her back on these guys. Okay, maybe you've been there where you're so torn up with grief, you were just so hurting that the last thing you want is somebody trying to comfort you, right? Somebody you don't know trying to extend sympathy. She turns her back on the angel. She doesn't even want to deal with it. She does not want to deal with them. She doesn't want to answer questions. And when she turns, she discovers that there's somebody else there with her. Somebody who has been with her the whole time, standing behind, watching her. And of course, we know that it's Jesus. And uh, she sees him, and she doesn't see him. She sees this guy standing there, but she does not see Jesus. Uh, a lot of critics have, have really been very skeptical of this. How, you know, how is it you can't see somebody you know? But I've seen this. I've, I've experienced this, this, actually. Seeing somebody out of context. Seeing somebody who doesn't belong. And you don't see them. Uh, several years ago, when our first grandchild was born, uh, her parents tricked us. Cruel, cruel trick. They flew out to Thailand with their little baby, who we had seen a couple of times in the States. She was about a year old. And um, our daughters knew. They conspired against us, against Denise and I. And they tricked us into going to a hotel to meet them for lunch. And Kara was there, and our granddaughter Haley was laying asleep on this couch. And I walked up, and I see this little child. That's my grandchild. And I go, well, whose baby are you looking? Are you taking care of? And I saw this child, and I thought, man, she looks just like my granddaughter. But I did not see my granddaughter. Right? Because she doesn't belong in Thailand. She doesn't, she's not here. Well, about then, my daughter and son-in-law come around the corner, and I just passed out right there in shock, right? Well, when you don't expect something, when it's out of context, you don't see. She didn't, Jesus could not be there, so she did not see Jesus. Okay? Uh, she saw a guy who she assumed to be the gardener, paid no more attention than that. And she did not see Jesus. Um, and Jesus asked two very probing and penetrating questions. He restates the question the angels just asked. Why are you crying? And maybe he asked it much more pointedly. Much more, you know, why are you crying now? Why are you crying at a time like this? This is not a time for crying. And again, Mary can't get past it. Mary is just fixated on this idea she has got to get Jesus' body back. She thinks, well, maybe the gardener took him. I don't know what the gardener does with dead bodies. I don't know. She's not thinking clearly, right? 
She says, if you've done something with him, just tell me. I will take care of him. I will get him. I will. And I, at this point, I just picture Mary in her heart going, I'm going to get Jesus' body. I'm going to take him home, right? I'm not going to ever let go of this body again, okay? I am going to make sure he is safe. I'm going to guard him personally. Okay, she is so determined to get Jesus back and to hang on to him. She is not going to let him go this time, even though it be only his dead, lifeless body. And Jesus says to her, Who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? Mary is looking only for one thing. Only one thing matters to her right now, and that is Jesus. Every fiber of her being, every ounce of her soul, energy, strength is focused on one simple thing, Jesus. Crazy thing is, he's standing right before her, and she's not getting it. So you got the witness of the tomb, you got the witness of the grave clothes, you got the witness of the angels, you got the witness of Jesus himself standing right there. It's not getting through. Right? This is not good news for us, okay, by the way. Because the real question is here is how are people going to come to believe Jesus? How are they going to come to believe him who rose from the dead when people don't do that? How how is this truth going to break into people's lives? Well, Jesus in his grace and mercy makes sure that the truth breaks through. And where all of that doesn't, because of her grief and her pain, where she cannot see him, he does what he knows will get through. And he simply speaks her name. He says, Mary. And that does it. No longer now is she alone. Up to this point, Mary is pictured, and I think that's why the other ladies are removed from the scene, because John wants to picture this lady in total aloneness carrying this grief and and burden totally alone. She can't even turn to God to comfort her. She can't turn to Jesus to comfort her. She is hopeless and lost. And the truth is, without the resurrection, that's where life is. If it wasn't for Jesus rising from the dead, that's where we would be, totally alone in grief and lostness. We could not go to God for comfort and hope. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we could not turn to him and hope that he could... Be with us and comfort us in our hurt and our pain. Without the resurrection, you are alone and lost. And it is empty. But then, in the midst of that loneliness, a voice pierces the darkness that lights up her life. He speaks her name. A name that she had heard him speak many times before. Uh, interestingly, she didn't recognize his voice before either, but now it all comes together. This is the one who knows me, who knows me deeply and intimately and personally, and the light comes on. He speaks her name, and the light comes on. And she cries out, Rabboni, which uh, does not translate well into English or uh, Greek. It means more than just teacher. It doesn't mean like crew, <laughs> Thai word, or just teacher. Hey, teacher. It really is a title of a very beloved, more like my dear precious rabbi. My dear beloved rabbi. And she falls at his feet and grabs hold of his feet. And now she is not going to let him go. Okay? If she wasn't going to let hold of the dead Jesus, imagine what she's going to do with the live Jesus, right? She is thrilled. 
This is resurrection. This is what it means for Jesus to be alive. He is with us. He knows us. He calls us by name. The whole time, maybe it starts to dawn, or the whole time he was standing there right beside me, right behind me. He's been with me this whole time. I just didn't see it. I didn't understand it. I don't know what went through Mary's mind. I don't know that a lot went through her mind at that moment. I don't know that she put together all the theological implications of the resurrection. It didn't matter to her. She had Jesus, and that was all that matters. Well, the story ends in a rather odd and puzzling way. It would be just a happy moment up to this point. It's all exciting. You know, we celebrate. We go, wow, it's so cool. Mary got Jesus. She's happy. She's holding on. They're having this really beautiful, special, precious moment. We go good on a postcard, you know. And Jesus says, Jesus wrecks the whole moment. I mean, you know, there's no hallmark moment here. Jesus says, don't hang on to me. Right? Don't hold on to me. Don't cling to me. What kind of wrecks the spirit? What is this? Um, you know, if you're going to show up, show some compassion here. You know? What is this all about? Well, there's been a lot of very interesting and crazy theories about what Jesus meant by this. One of the more common ones that I heard growing up was that Jesus says, don't cling to me because I have to ascend to my Father. And there was, there was, some, there was some like law of the universe that, that he couldn't be touched until he went and reported to God the Father first, right? You ever heard that one? I heard that one growing up. And so Mary couldn't touch him, but later when he comes and appears to Thomas, Thomas can touch him because apparently he went back and he said hi to Dad and came back and like you see Jesus like going back and forth or some kind of weird thing like that. Or you kind of get this, I mean, I kind of get this picture of Jesus like, like he came back from the dead, super obsessive compulsive. You know, don't touch me. I just got these washed, right? I just got done being dead. Don't, don't wrinkle the clothes, right? What is this about? What is going on here, right? What is Jesus saying to her? Well, I really believe that uh, the ascension Jesus is talking about is not some kind of magical trip between heaven and earth, back and forth, between seeing her and seeing the disciples, like he just came out of the grave, and he didn't have time to go see the Father yet, but he wanted to check in with Mary first. God who's beyond time, who measures no time. It doesn't work that way, okay? Uh, for Jesus, the ascension he's speaking about was his final ascension when he, before the disciples and before the crowd, rose up into the heavens and ascended to the Father. Okay, so there was a period of days... Uh, weeks, perhaps, between now and that point of time. Now, does it mean that Jesus had no contact with the Father? Well, no. He's God, okay? He met with the Father daily on earth. Now, as a resurrected being, I'm sure he was with the Father in every sense of the word, okay? But he's talking here about the ascension. In other words, the event or moment in time when he would be permanently removed from earth. That Jesus is saying... Mary, you got to understand something. I know that you want to hang on to me forever, and you're kind of hurting my feet, actually. And I know if it was up to you, you would never let go, literally, of me. Like, it would be really awkward, actually, right? But I, you need to know, Mary, that my resurrected existence is going to be different. You can't hold on to me. You can't, you can't have the kind of relationship with me you did before. I have risen. I am alive. But I am not, I'm not staying here. I am ascending to my Father, to your Father, to my God and your God. My new residence is heaven. That's where dead people go. Okay? They raise from the dead, but they don't stay here. Okay? It's not that great. 
Love you and all, but the food's terrible, okay? I'm going to heaven, all right? So you can't hold on to me. Okay, my point is life without Jesus. That doesn't mean that she's going to live life without Jesus. But all that Jesus has been teaching through the Gospel of John has been that life with Jesus is not life with me as a body beside you. It is my life in you. It is you and me. It's an abiding relationship where we are connected heart and soul and spirit. Where my Holy Spirit is poured out and abides with you constantly. That you will be and have access to me and to the Father through what I have done always. But we're not going to be buddies, okay? We're not going to go shopping together, okay? We're not going to sit down and have tea. No more Last Supper kind of deals, okay? It's going to be different. It is entering into a spiritual existence in my presence. you got to let go. you got to let go. Maybe she's saying to Mary, you know, you've been having a hard time letting go. you got to let go. Okay? You don't have to give up me. I will always be there with you. I will be there to speak your name to you. I am standing right behind you in all of your hurt and grief. But you've got to let me go. I am going back to my Father. But she doesn't, he doesn't send her away without a mission. He says, your job is to go tell others that you have seen me. Uh, she goes and she tells the disciples. She bears witness. Now the evidence is mounting. Okay, Now the uh, other disciples have the witness of the empty tomb, the grave clothes, the angels. And now the witness of Mary, who was an eyewitness to the res- resurrected Lord. Okay, It's opening the door. Now as Jesus appears, as he unfolds, faith becomes a bit easier for these others, right? Okay. So two questions remain as we close. Two questions, real quick. The first is, why did Jesus make this so difficult? I mean, you look at Jesus standing behind this agonizing woman. Why does he wait to rescue her? Why does he make her go through this? Why doesn't he greet Peter and John at the tomb? Why does he wait a whole week to show up for Thomas? Poor guy. Thomas, Jesus shows up. Thomas, this poor guy, he misses the whole deal. Has to wait a whole week. That's just cruel. Why, why does Jesus make this so difficult? Well, I think the answer is simply this. Uh, in verse 23, he tells Thomas, um, I'm sorry, verse 29, Jesus told Thomas, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. The reality is that all of us came to Christ through the witness of those who saw him. Okay, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but my guess is most of us did not come to Jesus because we saw him personally. That happens sometimes. But for most of us, that's not how we come to believe in the resurrection. We must come to believe by not seeing we must come to believe through the witness of the evidence, through the witness of eyewitnesses, and through Him speaking His name in our heart. Right? So Jesus is demonstrating it can be done. Okay? It was done with John. It took a little more with Mary, but it could be done. Okay? It's possible to believe without seeing. Blessed are you who have come to the conviction of the resurrection on your own apart from a visible witness, because Jesus is leaving. He can't come and show himself personally. That's not how it's going to work. It's going to be a life of faith, a life of encountering Jesus through the spiritual realm, not through personal encounters. 
I would love a personal encounter. I mean, I know some days when I felt like Mary, you know, just grieving, crying, screaming my eyes out because things aren't going well. And I just say, Jesus, would you just show up for once, right? doesn't work that way. For us, our faith must be a faith without sight. We must learn to hear him speak our name in the depths of our heart. Last question. Uh, Jesus asked Mary, he says, who are you looking for? For Mary, the answer was easy. She was looking for nothing other than Jesus. That was all that mattered. As we celebrate Easter, a good question for us is, who are you looking for? Who who or what are we looking for in life? Uh, The reality is a lot of people don't really ever encounter Jesus at any level because they're not really looking for him. It's so easy to get caught up with life, Uh, get caught up with our grief and our problems and our troubles and difficulties. Uh, with relationships, with jobs and careers, with our own agenda. And I think Jesus would speak those words to us this morning. Who, who are you looking for in life? Who are you looking for to fill you, to be the love of your life? For Mary, Jesus was the love of her life. She longed to be and to know Jesus. Great question for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just do celebrate and rejoice that you rose from the dead. And we don't really understand why why you have made that a fact that we have to grasp and grab hold of by faith. In our thinking, it would be so much easier if you just appeared and were visible and present in this earth. But that's not how you've chose to do it. You have called us to a life of faith. And you've given us these witnesses of the empty tomb and the grave clothes, the angels, of the eyewitness reports of those who did see you, of the witness of the Holy Spirit that bears witness to the truth in our hearts. But Lord, we enter into a life of faith where we encounter you in the spiritual realm, in the landscape of our heart and soul. So, Father, we ask that you would give us faith to firmly proclaim the resurrection and to stake our existence on it. And then, Lord, we also ask that you would help us to really examine uh, who we're looking for in life. Above all else, what is it that we are seeking? Who is it that we are seeking? Lord, I pray that it would be our heart's passion to seek after you, to long for you as Mary longed for you. Lord, fill us with a hunger to seek and to know you with every fiber of our being, we pray. And Lord, we thank you that as we seek you, you've promised you will be found. To the measure that we look, you will fill us. So fill us, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.